Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Normally, around this time of year, uh, I would be, like many other people, either standing in queues in the cold, waiting to go into a cinema to watch the latest uh, kind of film or documentary or drama or conversation at MIF, or I'd be attending the Melbourne Writers Festival, which is on now until the 16th of August. Now, we can't attend these events physically, but we can attend digitally, uh, and for the Melbourne Writers' Festival this year, which is branded itself MWF Digital, not only are there panel conversations and discussions, but there's also a series of podcasts that are being kind of uh, highlighted and celebrated as part of the festival. One of them is called Dramageddon, and it's created by playwright Jean Tong and comedian and composer Lou Wall. Lou joins me on the line now. A very good morning to you. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, very great pleasure. So, Dramageddon, is, has, you describe it as a queer choose-your-own-adventure podcast for people who love the apocalypse but wish Armageddon was just a little bit, well, gayer. Tell us more. <laughs> that is right. So, uh, what we do is we get um, two special guests and we put them through a queer apocalypse, like literally choose your own adventure situation. Um, and we kind of wanted to, I guess, intersect fiction and biography by way of getting our guests to talk about like real world problems through an imaginative frame. So it's very dumb <laughs> um, and also very spooky. The fact of that it enables people to talk about quite I guess, grim and significant topics like climate change and catastrophic climate change, like the collapse of, of the society that we know. It enables people to have that kind of serious discussion by putting a, a kind of playful lens around it. Was what, that one of the things that you thought would be a kind of valuable about the podcast, that we know that comedy is a great way to talk about serious topics in a non-serious way to make them more accessible? Was that something that you and Jean wanted to achieve? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think our art, we always try to focus on what is, you know, what young people are always thinking about. Um, and so we were actually approached, like, last October. And when in, at that time, climate change was, like, you know, the biggest thing at the forefront of our minds. And so we kind of were like, you know, we really want to write a podcast about climate change and also about different, um, you know, about politics as well. Um, but how can we do it but make it stupid and queer and super accessible? Because I think, you know, there's a lot of news and a lot of media that is, you know, you listen to it and it's just, like, absolutely devastating, especially for young people. Um, so we're like, how can we still address these issues but through a lens that is a bit stupid? Now, in terms of putting the podcast together, there's, I mean, there's a flood of podcasts. There's almost, it's like... The, it, we keep hearing about the golden age of TV. It's definitely the golden age of podcasts as well because there's so many out there which presents the challenge of making your your podcast stand out from the crowd. Clearly, the idea of it being a, a kind of a queer choose-your-own-adventure about kind of a, a gay apocalypse uh, <laughs> is already a unique selling point. But talk to us about what's it been like making the podcast as well because your background is certainly not necessarily in podcasts 
podcasting. It's more stand-up comedy, uh, musical theatre, live music, etc. Yeah, totally. Um, I think, I mean, I hope we've hit a niche in making like a queer apocalypse uh, drama, but I think for me, I have always been really into podcasts. I, um, I struggle to read, so but I get a lot of my information through the audio format. So I've been like obsessed with them for a long time and I did a little bit of radio and uh, Queen Vic kind of approached us asking us to make online content and we just thought like a podcast would be like a great way to do that. And then I think when we started doing it, we found it like a really fun medium because it's like it has a pretty quick turnaround so you can get something out like unlike a play or like a stand-up show you can get something out straight away and it also has the ability to like access a really wide range of people so we've really enjoyed you know working in a medium that just has you know a huge a, a way bigger audience than we have previously dealt with I guess. And it certainly means that there's no geographical or physical boundaries. People don't have to come and see a show which might only be playing at Melbourne Comedy Festival at the Malthouse or Adelaide Fringe or something like that. This is an opportunity to reach people not only across Australia but internationally as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly, which is a huge draw card for us. And as well, like, you know, trying to make your art accessible uh, in terms of, like, making it free is always hard but with a podcast like we were lucky enough to be produced and um sponsored by the queen victoria women's center which just allow you know takes that price barrier off which i think was always huge but is especially huge now um given that we're in a financial recession and pandemic at the same time now talk to us about uh the new episode that's uh, being kind of celebrated and, and released for Melbourne Writers Festival Digital. Uh, so uh, you and Jean are kind of chatting with... Who are your, who are your special guests? Oh, my God. So we have Candy Bowers and Navot Zissin, who are both uh, incredibly accomplished writers and speakers. So we got them on and we decided that for the Melbourne Writers Festival we'd do a book publishing apocalypse. So there's publishing scandals, uh, the question of IP rights, what it means to become a sellout, paperback or zombie snack. Um, and both Candy and Navarre kind of took it in a really fun direction. And, you know, they discuss everything from the inherent sexuality of a fedora, uh, how to navigate gravity and masturbate effectively in space, um, should you wear a mask while committing a heist, so uh, it's very fun, but at the core of this one, we talk um, about um, your rights as an individual in terms of publishing and your ideas and your IP. So that's kind of what grounds this episode. The fact that it can shift from, as I said, kind of uh, a comedic framework talking about kind of asking people to imagine uh, or respond to the kind of topics you're throwing at them through to, yeah, much more serious stuff like intellectual uh, into intellectual property and how you maintain the rights to your IP. It's Again, it kind of reminds me of just how valuable comedy is as a medium because really you can explore anything through a comedic lens. 
Yeah, totally, totally. You wrap anything up in a joke and you'll definitely get some wild answers out of it, I think. Were you surprised that Melbourne Writers Festival wanted to celebrate podcasts in this way? Because traditionally, uh, Melbourne Writers Festival is a festival about books and writing. And over the years, that's we've seen how those kind of the, I guess, what once were fairly narrow parameters, fiction, non-fiction, poetry off in a corner and speculative fiction down in the basement somewhere. Kind of the festival has really evolved over the last kind of decade or two uh, and Clearly, podcasting is such a popular and podcast is such a popular medium. But were you surprised when they approached you? Yeah, totally. I, well, I was more surprised that they'd take us, to be honest, because I was just like, I feel like we're just like making some crazy shit. Um, and I feel like Moment Writers Festival has uh, much more established writers. But I think in terms of um, them putting podcasts in their program, I mean, we've seen like a shift um, in the audiobook landscape, like a huge huge shift in that recently so I think it's like a very natural course for them to be taking but yeah I totally agree with what you said you know with speculative fiction how it used to be kind of on the outskirts but I guess um I think speculative fiction is um a really prominent vessel of hope in this time like I think people are really interested in you know ideas um and you know alternative worlds that are hopeful um so I think yeah, I was surprised, but I was also like, this seems like a very natural path for them to be going down, and I really hope that the future, um, you know, even if we're out of the pandemic next year, I'd love to still see a digital version as well as a uh, in-person version of the Melbourne Writers Festival, because I think um, it brings so much. I'm speaking with comedian and composer Lou Wall, who's uh, one half of the team behind the podcast Dramageddon, and the latest issue of their podcast uh, is part of the program for the Melbourne Writers' Festival Digital Festival this year. Now, in terms of accessing the podcast, where can people go, Lou, if they actually kind of want to sit down and listen? Or, alternatively, yes. listen while they're going on their one-hour mandated walker day. <laughs> yes, it is exactly an hour, so it's the perfect length for your within-five-kilometre radius walk. Uh, so this is coming out on Saturday, which is, oh, my God, what is time? No, it's the fifth, yeah, the 15th of August. So you can either, it's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen, just search Dramageddon, or you can go through the Melbourne Writers' Festival website, um, search Dramageddon, and you'll find us there. And there's also, uh, if you go to bravewavepods.com forward slash Dramageddon, you can find uh, the episodes released to date, which include uh, Triple R's own Geraldine Hickey, uh, playwright Morgan yeah. Rose, uh, Carly Shepard, comedian Zoe Coombs-Ma, and more. Um, and let's, just before we wrap up, Lou, let's talk about the choose-your-own-adventure aspect of the podcast as well. Uh, I loved the Choose Your Own Adventure books when I was a kid. <laughs> and it's kind of like, right, do you, I don't know, do you open the door, turn to page 36? Do you run away, turn to page 78? That kind of structure. Talk to us about how you've used that structure to kind of drive the conversations and the topics that are being explored in Dramageddon. Yeah, totally. So I think it started because um, we really wanted um, people to play themselves but in a fictional world. So Choose Your Own Adventure was a very, um, you know, easy way to do that. But also we wanted to put people in, like, super, super ethical um, conundrums where they'd almost have to choose a bad, you know, option and, like, talk their way through it. Uh, so we kind of write, like, 
you know, a 15-page script um, and there's all these, you know, there's multiple different endings and, you know, it's kind of sad when you get to the end. You're like, oh, damn it, we could have gone down that path, but we didn't. But uh, it's always really interesting kind of guessing beforehand, being like, I reckon they'll end up on ending C and, you know, it's never ending C that they end up on. And so, yeah, I guess it's just a great way to put them into really stupid, tricky situations and make them have to backpedal and talk their, their way out of it. The latest episode of Dramageddon, the uh queer choose-your-own apocalyptic adventure podcast created by Gene Tong and Lou Wall is being released this Saturday as part of Melbourne Writers' Fest Digital. Just go to mwf.com.au for more details. And uh, the latest episode is featuring Candy Bowers, who's been a guest on this program many times, accomplished kind of writer, actor, performer, activist, producer, and more. Uh, And also uh, the other guest is Nivo Zissen, who is a non-binary Australian writer and transgender rights activist. So it should be a fun, playful, yet kind of undercurrent of serious conversation. Looking forward to seeing where it goes. Uh, Lou, just before I let you go, um, obviously the pandemic has impacted your ability to present works at Melbourne Comedy Festival and elsewhere, apart from Dramageddon. Is there anything else you're up to that we can steer listeners towards? Oh, yes. Um, I mean, if you follow me at the Lou Wall, that's where all my stuff will be. But um, Jean and I are writing a musical called Flat Earth as a musical about people who believe in conspiracy theories. Um, so that's one to watch out for. And we'll also be doing stuff with Melbourne Fringe in their digital fringe at the end of the year. I look forward to finding out more about that once the Digital Fringe program is launched. And as we said, if you want to check out the latest issue of Dramageddon, created by Jean Tong and Lou Wall, you can go to any of your favourite digital podcast platforms where you would normally listen to them, or you can go to the Melbourne Writers' Festival website, mwf.com.au, where the latest episode of Dramageddon is being released this Saturday. Or, as I said, if you want to listen to uh, some of the, the back back issues, uh, that's not, no, we don't call them issues, it's not a magazine. <laughs> Season one. Yeah. Season one, uh, go to uh, uh, broadwavepods.com forward slash Dramageddon, and you can find all the episodes there. Lou, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Thank you so much. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Natalie King is a curator and arts writer based here in Melbourne. Uh, And amongst other things, she is the series editor of uh, a group of publications released by Thames and Hudson Australia, Mini Monographs. Uh, the latest two in the series uh, uh, kind of available f- now as of the 1st of August. Natalie, a very good morning to you. Hi, Richard. It's great to be speaking to you today. Now, what is a mini monograph? So mini monographs are small, compact books on an artist with approximately 80 images of their most loved works accompanied by a text by someone not from the art world, which adds an extra and very special frisson. So typically a monograph is a substantial, usually exhibition catalogue that takes years to assemble, often produced by a museum. And Thames and Hudson and myself, we wanted to produce something that is uh, very accessible, very visually led, very much led by the artist works with a short kind of pithy text by someone from a parallel field. So for the artist Nell, we partnered Nell with 
the um, with the musician Robert Forster from the 80s band The Go-Betweens because Nell's work is very much influenced by lyrics, music, by kind of rock. And in July 27th, 2017, Gold Coast Art Gallery hosted uh, musician Robert Forster and Nell in a conversation, and that's where they first met. Now, this idea of uh, a mini kind of monograph is an intriguing one, because as you say, normally a, a monograph is seen as a very authoritative text and kind of uh, very serious uh, and, as you've said, can take significant kind of time to, to create and because it's documenting a significant body of work. So these mini monographs, they're not disposable. They're not kind of light uh, things that can be quickly forgotten. They're, they're still weighty and serious, but they are allowing the artworks of the subject to be celebrated by focusing so much on the art itself rather than a collection of essays, for example. Yes, absolutely. So as we discussed, monographs are usually very scholarly. They have extensive bibliographies. Many monographs are compact. They're books that they're books to be treasured. Uh, last year, we released the first two in the series, and our focus is uh, exclusively on women artists. So we released a mini monograph on Del Catherine Barton and Polixeni Papapetru, the late photographer. And Polly's uh, text was written by the, um, the theatre writer, Joanna Murray-Smith, and um, Del Catherine Barton, um, we produced a book with her as well by um, the fiction writer Sarah Darmody. So we're bringing in a different type of kind of lens or uh, approach to the artists. And we also, this year we've just released Nell's book with quite a um, dazzling account by Robert Forster who... Um, we were interested in the way he's a lyricist and a poet and his cult rock band, The Go-Betweens. So he went to see Nell's work at University of Queensland Art Museum and he re reminisces in his sort of first-person account of seeing Tom Waits perform in the hall in 1979 and then he riffs off that and looks at Nell's um, titles such as Unlimited Radiance, which was a work that they had their conversation in front of in the Gold Coast. And the, the book finishes with a work called Happy Ending, which, of course, is very fitting. Now, there's a second uh, mini monograph that's also just been released this month uh, by Thames and Hudson Australia. Uh, now, I'm going to get you to pronounce the artist's name because I'm not entirely sure I'm going to get it right. OK, so the other book uh, that, that I guess we're releasing pairs is uh, by Emily Noire a very important um, Aboriginal artist uh, from Utopia. Um, she grew up... She had a, quite a compressed career. She um, made works over a, about a 10-year period. And the accompanying text is by the Irish author Colm Tolbin, who has been shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Many people might have seen... Um, the Netflix rendition of his book, Brooklyn. And so he writes this um, very um, sort of account where he's completely bedazzled by her dots and her paintings and 
um, the sort of visual resonances of her of her artworks from an Irish perspective. And I mean, the opening of his uh, his introduction, his commentary uh, in the the mini monograph. Uh, he says of Emily, she saw what could still be done. That was her great achievement, uh, which yeah. I, just as an opening line, that resonates. And a little bit later on, he talks, uh, he references Edward Said writing about late style, about what happens to a, a composer or a writer or a painter at the very end when uh, a time when all has been said, for example. And that, that idea of seeing what has been said and yet being able to go further, go beyond, is a really intriguing idea to explore when then looking at Emily's work. Yes, he writes at the, right at the end about freedom, um, revisiting her work um, afresh, with a refreshed view, because her work is really... Um, it's kind of timeless and there's no straightforward way to approach it because it continues to pulsate and resonate decades later. Now, um, in terms of Emily's work, let's talk a little bit more about her as a such a significant figure in kind of the Aboriginal art world. She passed away, unfortunately, in 1996. The following year, her work presented at the, the Venice Biennale, uh, and then in 2019, the Tate Gallery in London purchased her work, making hers the first piece of Australian Indigenous art to enter their collection. The fact that, A, the fact that it's taken this long for the, the Tate to kind of buy a piece of kind of contemporary Australian Indigenous art is slightly surprising, I have to say, but it speaks to the significance of her work, that hers was the first work that the, the Tate chose to add to its collection? I think absolutely. I mean, she is certainly one of Australia's most significant artists, if not um, most significant Indigenous artists. Uh, she had, she showed earlier this year um, in New York. Uh, she had a very significant exhibition in 2008 in Tokyo that uh, achieved record attendance. So there's something that um, her work and her um, the way the way she works with color and palette and line and landscape that resonates across cultures and across borders and is really timeless. How do you go about selecting the works for the the mini monographs? Obviously, with Nell, you can collaborate with her. Uh, since uh, Emily is deceased, that's not possible. Talk to us about the the process of selecting and developing the works that would be published. Yeah. That's a great question because typically monographs are presented in a chronological form and we wanted to abandon that convention and work with kind of rhythms and flows and um, pairings. So uh, I work, worked very closely with Nell and also with the publisher, Kirsten Abbott, to develop a certain type of sequence. So some works uh, sit side by side that are text-based. With Nell, some are more sculptural, some relate to her performative practice. So we did some kind of sequencing. It takes actually a very long time, a lot longer than you would realise. But uh, with Nell, we worked closely with Christopher Hodges, who's the director of Utopia Art in Sydney, um, and Christopher staged um, Emily's first solo show in 1990 and represented her throughout her career. So we wanted to go to someone who could give us access not only to the work but suggest um, some rhythms that we could achieve in the book. 
Um, similarly, I worked very closely with um, Pollock Senator Papa Petru, who unfortunately passed away when the book was published. But prior to that, we uh, I sat by her bedside in Fitzroy um, over numerous occasions, you know, with with colour colour printouts of various theories and sequences and we worked through some rhythms and really through friendship, conversation and um, closeness, we, we arrived at the current um, book by Polly. So we started with the series Eden, which is the second last series that she made before she passed away, where she has uh, young women... Um, holding very large and ornate bouquets of flowers, wearing floral dresses and that almost merge into um, patterned wallpaper. The foreground, background, middle ground all merge in this sort of floral arrangement. And I think she was she might have been thinking about the afterlife and the idea of the wreath, but also sort of youth and blooms. If you've just tuned in, my guest is Natalie King, uh, Melbourne-based arts curator and writer, who is the series editor of the Mini Monographs, uh, being published by Thames and Hudson Australia. The latest two uh, Mini Monographs have been released. Now, Natalie, as we said, traditionally monographs are more scholarly in their approach. Uh, Is there the hope that by publishing these Mini Monographs that you will enable people who perhaps wouldn't normally consider buying an art book or a major catalogue, possibly also because of the price of some monographs or catalogues, that these books, because they're uh, priced at, what, $29.99, they're more accessible in that regard as well. Who do you see as the the audience of this? Dedicated art lovers who already know the artist's work? Or kind of are you hoping that kind of people will, once we can return to browsing in bookshops, for example, that kind of the more casual uh, kind of reader might pick up these books? I'm hoping that both. I mean, everyone, a lot of people enjoy looking at art and the books, they make an a, um, exquisite series, so you could buy one or you could buy all four. Um, they're still available to order online, and we're certainly hoping that they will, and we already know that from the series that we released last year, the first two, that they're reaching um, much broader audiences within the art world and beyond, in the same way that people might be browsing cookbooks or design books or books about slow time, they might also pick up a mini monograph and hopefully be tantalised. Now, uh, as we've said, there's four books published in the series to date. Can you uh, shed any light on what the future plans are? Do you continue to uh, plan to develop more books in the mini monograph series, again, maintaining this focus on uh, Australian female artists? We'll most definitely be releasing another suite next year we're still in the process of confirming uh, who the artist might be, but I'm really hoping that um, there'll be an international artist. I think that would be probably make sense that we start um, thinking about artists internationally and pairing them alongside Australian artists. So that's, that's my dream for the series for next year, but we're still resolving. 
Well, we'll just have to wait and stay tuned for details. Yeah, but for now, uh, the the latest two books in the mini monograph series focusing on Emily Noire and also the artist Nell have been published by Thames and Hudson Australia, uh, $29.99. You can find out more details at thamesandhudson.com.au, each with a considered introduction by people from outside the visual art world, so kind of looking at the artist's work through a different lens. And certainly the... uh, the, uh, essay uh, by the Irish writer uh, Colm Tobin uh, certainly kind of, yeah, it's a beautiful piece of writing in and of itself let alone the way that accompanies the the works that have been reproduced in the book I've only seen a PDF copy so I'm looking forward to actually perusing a physical copy at some point because uh, the reproduction of artworks kind of uh, is kind of when they're reproduced well as I'm sure they are in these books, there's a joy in being able to look at art and just sit and kind of gaze upon a work for an extended period of time rather than in a gallery thinking I better move on because somebody else is trying to jostle past me tamsandhudson.com.au to see the works. Natalie King, thank you so much for joining us on Smart Arts this morning Thank you so much Richard for having me Joining me on the line now is choreographer Prue Lang, who's joined us to chat about Body Insect Machine, uh, a work presented by Chunky Move with Science Gallery Melbourne as part of National Science Week's digital events program, Possible Impossibles. Prue, a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us here at Triple R. Yeah, hi, good morning. So let's talk about uh, the, the question that is being, that this work is, can, is, I guess, putting forward. Could an insect, a human and an android communicate through dance? Could they? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it's been an interesting process. As you know, it's part of the Activators program, which is Chunky Moves program that invites um, independent artists to apply choreographic approaches and principles to different ideas and one of the ideas that I've been already exploring um, is a collaboration with artist Matcha Briand and working with his androids which are these complex robots that he creates himself and um, yeah just looking at the complexity of this sort of artificial intelligence choreography and working in relationship to that. So I guess for the activators, we decided to insert the phasmid, the stick insect, in between those two things, my uh, choreographic body, dancer body, the artist's androids, and then this uh, stick insect. It's, Here with me? I am. <laughs> and those three elements fascinate me because, yes, um, the human body could kind of generate movement that would respond to the the limited very limited kind of movement vocabulary of a machine, bringing a stick insect into the equation, the, that kind of slow kind of jerky movement that is so different to the way the human body moves, kind of, mm. again, trying to respond to that, collaborate and communicate with that. The sheer idea of essentially collaborating with an insect, for example, is just mm-hmm. striking already from a, uh, from a dance perspective. But then, as we say, putting in the machinery as well into the equation, there's a lot to, kind of, to explore there. Yeah, absolutely. So um, with these androids, they're actually, they have very complex uh, movement sequences And they also play a lot with this thing we're very interested in, which is the uncanny. So when you look at, say, one of the androids, uh, which is a torso, or another one which is sort of um, semi-pelvis and legs, 
that you sort of automatically imagine the rest of the body. So they become very human. This is where the uncanny comes in. Uh, you sort of naturally sort of visualize the, the rest of the body and it becomes very human to watch, but very uncanny because it's disturbing. And I guess the insertion of the phasmid, we both sort of realized that the phasmid, because we have phasmids at home, so Australian um, leaf insects and stick insects, who also have quite complex um, movement capacities. And we also had a bit of a chat with Mark Elgar, a biologist who specializes in this. And we got a lot of insight into how they function, how they, for example, if you blow on a stick insect, it will move back and forth. So that, that's a sort of camouflage mechanism. So if wind was going through the trees, it would be camouflaging with the, the leaves moving on the trees. So we looked at a few different, uh, you know, little specificities of this insect. It's also quite mechanical, which links in with the robots, but it's also natural. It looks like um, a piece of bark at other times. So we're really looking at the body. On the one hand, the body in relation to androids, artificial movement, that sort of artificial intelligence. And on the other hand, body in relation to human instinct, or animal instinct and natural movement and nature. And we're sort of shifting the landscapes in this little film exploration of at some point the insect is the, is the dancer. At another point, my arm is helping it unfold in a specific direction. In other moments, I'm responding to its movements. In other moments, I'm just its landscape. For example, it's on my back. Uh, walking, so I'm just responding to the direction and it's going. So it was really interesting to play with that. And then on the other hand, it also has its own little venture across the the robot. For example, the robot arm comes and p picks it up, or it climbs over the pelvis. And so the robot also became a kind of moving landscape for the stick insect. So all of these sort of little connections that were really interesting interested in observing, responding, manipulating these complex relationships between the concepts. And also, because we're working in film, we're really looking at um, the differences between physical presence and artificial presence. So my presence as a dancing body, uh, the presence of the robots, which have their own, generate their own sort of uncanny uh, response in the viewer, and then the sort of natural stick insect, which we can't really predict and it's very fragile but on the other hand it's quite a strong creature like if you push it it will resist it will fold in a way that makes it quite hard for some predators to eat it so all these like little micro movements were quite a fascinating thing for me as a choreographer and i'm fascinated by them as well because simply kind of bringing all of this together for example robots some robots and uh, that question of the uncanny valley robots that have been designed to look human and move in a human way kind of create mm. a certain response but what intrigues me is robots don't need to look like humans why the the idea of imposing some kind of anthropomorphic kind of frame and structure to say a robot should look like this and move like that when mechanical movement could be imagined at a very different level and in a very different way to the the movements of the human body 
which then brings in the insect body, insects having more, far more, like two extra limbs that a human dancer yeah. does not have. So the idea of being able to play with what the human body can do, what robot bodies might be able to do were we not imposing certain human structures on them and then putting the insect in the middle and letting it do its own six-legged kind of insectoid thing. All of these are intriguing elements to explore in a dance work on film. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we do a lot with dance. You know, I I work a lot in my practice with texture and surfaces and touch, and I have a whole taxonomy around the touch. And this is quite interesting because... If I was working with the insect, I had to really feel and sense these really delicate legs. If I'm working with the robots, which are completely artificial, but I can't quite predict it because they're on quite complex algorithms. Um, but I can also watch them, which these robots are obviously an imitation of human movement, but with all these kind of specificities of robotic movement like vibration or they're getting stuck or they can only rotate in certain ways or they can rotate more than I can in my shoulder. So I was really looking and observing at this, these these micro movements and trying to sort of let that inform my choreographic choice or my choreographic responses. So there's a lot of sort of flexing, stretching preparing sort of my functionality, uh, looking at how else my joints might unfold. And we could really use this in the film. So you could sort of like juxtapose the, the insect's leg unfolding with, an, with my elbow unfolding, with the android's knee unfolding, for example, or shoulder. <laughs> so very interesting um, sort of back-and-forth dialogue between this kind of physical presence and artificial presence. Now, if people Mm. want to see the work we're talking about, it's being presented as part of National Science Week, which is running from the 15th until the 23rd of August. Uh, And uh, Body Insect Machine will be available to stream via chunkymove.com from 5pm this Saturday Mm -hmm. the 15th of August and then available until Sunday the 23rd of August. What do you see as the life for this uh, project and this series of investigations beyond this film itself? Do you see yourself kind of adapting some of this movement vocabulary you've been learning from both insect and machine into future uh, aspects of your practice, for example? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, like previous, uh, previously I've, I've worked with the androids before. I've worked with them in a live context, um, dancing with them. In this case of the film, I'm separate from them. Um, so there's potential there to keep sort of reinvestigating and creating new context for that. And then for the insects, that I was really triggered. It really triggered my imagination when I spoke with the biologist about um, the camouflage and all their sort of sort of evolutionary mechanisms and behaviours. And this is something I'd like to explore further with other animals, birds, insects. It's something I'm really fascinated by. And um, I could see that potentially being another whole exploration in my choreographic practice. So it also could, this is a COVID project, remember, so we had to do it in um, quite little small uh, circumstances and very tight. And as a result, we've come up with a sort of six-minute online format. But we could imagine this expanding out into a three-channel large projection somewhere in the future and developing that. So... 
it's just a first sort of conversation and investigation and we'll just see how it sort of evolves. And Pearl, yeah. I'm also interested in the, the, I guess, the ethics of working with insects because you mm. would have to take significant care that uh, the yes. insects are not being crushed or damaged by the robot, for example, or that you are treating yep. them kind of, kind of carefully and safely because yeah. I know that um, environmental sustainability is, is kind of like an undercurrent in your practice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, don't forget, they're actually our pets. So we've been living with them on our balcony for um, a really long time and breeding them. So we actually have observed them. We play with them. My daughter plays with them. Her friends play with them. And the more you sort of understand and delicately handle them, the more you start to understand how they behave, how they respond to different things, and you start to develop a kind of intuition or an instinct around them. So when, we're, when we put the robot with the insect, we were very careful. We were watching, making sure it was never being crushed. We are aware of the situations where it was um, being pushed or not or, you know, it was kind of interesting. But we, we understand the creatures because we've lived with them as our, as our pets, so to speak. Which certainly gives you greater insight too into their movement and means that even at the, at the very start of this kind of creative development, you were already attuned to your subject. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Body Insect Machine is presented by Chunky Move uh, with Science Gallery Melbourne as part of National Science Week's series of digital events, Possible Impossibles. Uh, and if you've been intrigued by my conversation with uh, Prue, you can stream Body Insect Machine via chunkymove.com from 5pm this Saturday, the 15th of August. And the work will be available online until Sunday, the 23rd of August. And if you want to learn more about National Science Week, it's running from the 15th until the 23rd of August and you can go to www.scienceweek.net.au for more details. Prue Lang, thank you so much for joining us on Triple R today. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>